Good fight. That's the name of our summer real men Bible study. We'll be going verse by verse through First Timothy. Uh, you and me up here in the mountains, real informal, casual. Twelve weeks looking at an older man named Paul, building up and uh, investing in a younger man named Timothy, teaching him how to be a man of God and fight a good fight. And I'll tell you, in a day when the uh, world has lost its mind and everything's going to hell, a uh, few men need to learn how to fight. I'll see you guys online this summer as we study first timothy the good fight well how do your uh, your favorite highly offensive bible teacher with a shrek size head and bangs that have gone home to be with the lord but a varsity level beard to compensate back with our uh, summer series um good fight and we're going through first timothy it's like a spiritual father Paul speaking to and pulling up uh, spiritual son Timothy and uh, yeah it's been a good series thanks for joining in and and helping get the word out the number of men that we're reaching is staggering and uh, I was even out of town at a hardware store and a dude came up and introduced himself tunes in every single week and I was getting uh, roofing nails for a project and let me just say if you're a roofer Thank you, thank you, thank you. Man, if the last are going to be first, roofers in heaven, we're all going to be cleaning your gutters. Man, I was up on the roof trying to nail down a flashing. We're in Arizona. I mean, it, it, is, it, it, is, it is like two degrees away from hell right now. We're just, we're just a, a tick under hell. And, uh, and for all you guys that are working outside, you, you guys that are fi fixing HVAC in places where it's not working and you're in the attic it's a million degrees and you roofers and you landscapers and you guys that are building homes and doing concrete work and kind of some of the stuff my dad used to do man thank you especially as we're in arizona right now and it's 118 degrees thank you thank you thank you nonetheless uh here's today's topic uh command number 10 love leaders and in each section Paul, the spiritual father, is telling Timothy, the spiritual son, kind of here's, here's another thing to work on, to focus on, to grow up in, to become a good man who's ready to fight for his faith and his family and his freedom, a good fight. And today we're in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, through chapter uh, 6, verse 2. And uh, it's got my notes here. And let me get rid of my cough drop. Um, and if you're a preacher, doTERRA essential oils, cough drops, or a singer, best thing in the world, change your life, save your voice, along with uh, an organic propolis spray. Here's my total notes. Most of this is verbal processing. You get what you pay for. This is free. Lower your expectations. We'll start with leadership. And what Paul is telling here, he's telling Timothy, a younger man, here's how you relate to leadership. And now Timothy is exercising leadership. So previously, Paul had kind of been the first in command and Timothy was the second. Well, now Paul is out of town, if memory serves me correct. I think he's in Ephesus writing the letter. And now Timothy is the first in charge. So he's kind of taken the senior leader position. And the question is, well, how do you, how do you come under leadership? And then how do you lead? And so the key to leadership is number one, being a good follower of a good leader. And then number two, being a good leader so that others can follow. And so you just need to know that uh, leadership is, there's a lot of definitions. I'll give you a simple one. 
It's vision and influence. Number one, a leader has vision. They see a different, better, brighter future, and they're able to compellingly articulate that, and then they are able to influence others. Now people will trust them, follow them, support them, fund them, come alongside them, aid and assist them. So leadership is vision and influence. And uh, some guys say they're leaders, they're not. They may have vision, but they don't have influence. And there was an old preacher once said, any guy who says he's a leader and doesn't have followers is just a fool out for a walk. And that's true. So it's vision and influence. And God works through leadership. At work, God works through your boss. That's why in the New Testament, it has a lot of things to say to employers and employees. In the church, God works through leadership, starting with the senior pastor, the first in charge, the singular human head of that local church. And then God also works through uh, leadership in the family, the husband and father being the head, and then the wife and the mother also being a co-leader. So the Bible says over and over to the kids, honor and obey your mother and your father. So in every level of society, God works through leadership. He does this as well through political leadership, which is why Romans 13 says to give heed to secular governing authorities. And so what God does, God works through leadership and to not regard leadership is to be demonic. And Satan was the first to demonstrate rebellion against authority and independence from authority. And, and what we have in the West tends to be a rebellion against authority and a disregard of authority, and it's demonic, and it started with Satan. And God wants leaders to be accountable to him and the people to be accountable to both him and the leaders. And that being said, God holds leaders and followers in the Bible accountable. And God does deal with ungodly leaders. Now, the problem that we have today, we have the wrong people leading and they have the wrong vision. And we have what is explained in Isaiah chapter 3, verse 12, um, a broken culture where children and um, unhealthy women are leading and men are absent. Here's what it says in uh, first Tim, excuse me in Isaiah 3:12, "Youth suppress my people, women rule over them. My people, your guides lead you astray, they turn you from the path." What Isaiah was prophesying was a day when children and youth culture and and the, uh, the emotional inclinations of the least mature and experienced are leading and influencing culture. And then with them are domineering, overbearing, ungodly, Jezebelian women. And that the blind guides, the leaders are saying we should be for uh, children and women. And what they're doing is they're choosing the least healthy women and the least mature children to make the leadership decisions. If you really want to help women and children, you do what we do at Real Men. You build men up to bless women and children. That's what you do. And so here are five ways that if you are a leader, you can help build a culture through teaching the Word of God so that it is healthy. And then if you are under authority, these are five ways that you can grow 
in submitting to and respectfully honoring and following and helping your church leadership, your business leadership, your father and your family leadership. And I always like to say that leadership is a dance. And that is that the leader needs to be humble and the people need to be honoring. And if you have a situation where the people are honoring, but the leader isn't humble, it becomes domineering and overbearing. It smells like North Korea. If you have a situation where the leader is humble, but the people aren't honoring, then they use and abuse the leader. These are the people that underpay and uh, dishonor their pastor, overwork them, and disrespect their family. The leader's being humble, but the people are not being honoring. This dance is how the leader can be humble and the people can be honoring. So number one, um, you love a leader by paying them. And he says this in 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18, let the elders, and elders here are in the Old and New Testament, and lots of different churches and denominations will argue about this. I want to set that all aside. Paul says not to quibble over words. In the most basic sense, it means mature, godly, seasoned, older men who know the scriptures, have the Holy Spirit, and life experience, so they're in the best position to make the best decisions. We're talking about the wise, mature, sage-like men. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. God commands honor, and God is to be honored, and when God establishes a leader, the people are to honor God by honoring the leader. If you are suspicious, jaded, have a father wound, you have a problem with authority, you are rebellious by nature, you have a problem that needs to be solved, and you need to say less about other people and ask God to speak to you about what your problem is. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. That's Deuteronomy 25, 4. And quote, the laborer deserves his wages. That's what Jesus says in Luke 10, verse 7. And what we're seeing here is what I'll call governance. Leadership is what an individual has. Governance would refer to the system. So you can have a good leader in a bad system and they're going to fail uh, because the system is really the parameters in which the leader works. Not nearly enough is written on governance. Governance is singular headship, plural leadership like the Trinity, a singular head who is the leader and a plurality of leaders. It needs to include um, internal authority structures and external accountability structures. I can't get into all of this, but what we're getting into here is governance. And that is, is the church, is the business, is the family architected in such a way that those who are in authority are under God's authority and those who are under their authority are experiencing godly leadership for their blessing and benefit. And I believe that governance is a gift. And I believe when the Bible uses words like overseer, it's talking about governance. Some people in the Bible are also called governors. One of them is a man named Nehemiah. And governing is not working in the organization, it's working on the organization. It's not managing or just leading, it is architecting the entire structure, budgets, job descriptions, convictions, priorities, scheduling, all of those details. It's sequencing and architecting. It's like you build the house that everyone else lives in. So when you go to build a house, there's an architect, and then there's a builder, and then there's a resident. 
Well, in a church, a business, or a family, somebody's got to be the architect. That's governance. And then there's leaders. They come in and build a proverbial house. And then there are people who live within that organization. And so governance is extremely crucial. And part of our problem in America right now, not only do we have bad leadership, we have bad governance. The entire structure is, quite frankly, broken. It's just quite frankly broken. And what we're seeing here is local and translocal leadership. There's a local church, and Paul is writing to it with translocal authority. This is important in the church. In the church, the, the question I always have is, and I'll talk a little bit about church leadership and governance, which is, tends to be broken. Who holds the pastor accountable? Well, the board. Well, who holds the board accountable? Nobody. Then that's how you get bad governance in an unjust system. There are two ways that a church can go wrong. The senior pastor or the board or staff. And there needs to be accountability for both. And when they have a disagreement, there needs to be external authority that has authority to come in and to render verdicts and decisions as to the local conflict. That's exactly what Paul is doing when he is writing and he is not local, he is translocal. In other places he talks about, you know, local leaders. Yeah, but he's not local and he's exercising authority over the local leaders as a non-local leader. So the big idea is this, you need accountability within the organization and outside of the organization. That being said, um, he says that they are worthy of those who preach and teach of double honor. Preaching and teaching, therefore, is the highest authority and call in the local church. If you get up, you are the singular head. And if you open the word of God, you are exercising the highest authority. You are elevated above the people, literally showing that you are in an authoritative position under the authority of God, but you're literally bringing the word of God physically over the people and spiritually over the people. And you're saying, I am under God's authority. I am under the authority of God's word. I'm going to open God's word and teach you. And I expect you to honor his word and to honor his servant. And ultimately that is an honoring of his authority. And what he says is that um, they're worthy of um, double honor. And the honor there is financial remuneration. It's paying them. And so let me just talk about something that very few people want to talk about. And that is that most pastors that I know, they're woefully underpaid. And their entire family volunteers and serves in ministry, unlike most other jobs. In addition, most pastors that I know give very generously to their church. Most pastors that I know, they give double tithe, 20% or more. And they buy people wedding presents and baby gifts, and they usually have an office in their home, and usually they're having people over for dinner and hospitality, and they're buying presents, and they're using their car to drive to hospital and events, and they're going to people's weddings and buying them wedding presents. And, and the number of hours and dollars that a ministry family puts into the church family that is not compensated is unbelievable and staggering. And ministry leaders know that and they sign up for that. That's why ministry leaders are not in it for the money. There's a whole lot money to be more money to be made in the for-profit sector. In addition, in the for-profit sector, if you found a company at the end of your tenure, you can sell it or give it to your kids and you can sell it and monetize it and cash in. In a nonprofit, you don't own it, so you just walk away. You literally just walk away. And I've said this many times, I've had people over the years ask me, how much do you make? I've never had anybody ask me how much I give. 
you would be shocked, most of you would be shocked at how little your pastor is paid, how many hours they and their family work, how many dollars they put in, and how generous they are. And so I just, I'm a defender of pastors, I'm a lover of pastors, and I believe um, most pastors that I know, um, they are not adequately compensated. And part of honoring a leader is paying them. Number two, uh, you love a leader by trusting them. You, they're, they're not guilty till proven innocent. They're innocent till proven guilty. They're not to be held accountable by the pajama hadin on the internet, but by godly older leaders who are ahead of them, spiritually fathering them as Paul is fathering Timothy. He says, do not admit a charge against an elder except by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And what it's talking about here is sometimes one person can just be a damnable liar. Happens all the time. If you read the Bible, most of God's servants had a real problem with false witnesses. For example, just comes to mind as I'm verbal processing. Nehemiah, a legal letter was sent out by a demonic um, governmental leader that he had uh, broken the law and cursed God. And it went out as a legal decree. He hadn't done anything. The days of Elijah, he was constantly falsely accused by Ahab and Jezebel. Um, Paul was arrested multiple times because false witnesses said all kinds of terrible things about him. Jesus Christ was put on trial and crucified by the testimony of multiple false witnesses. We know that. Their stories didn't even agree with each other, let alone the truth, but they didn't care because they wanted Jesus dead. And being and bearing false witness is such a big deal that God put it in the Ten Commandments. Of all the ten things, God's like, don't bear false witness. And there are people who will bear false witness. They will lie. They will make stuff up. They will falsely accuse. They will twist the facts. They'll take out parts and change the narrative. And it happens all the time to leaders. And a leader then is in a very difficult position because if you don't respond, everybody assumes you're guilty. And if you do respond, people think you're being defensive and as a result, you're ungodly and you're, you're attacking other people and you're unloving. And so it's what psychologists would call a double bind. A double bind is a position where you're kind of damned if you do and you're damned if you don't, you're in a lose-lose. And a false witness creates for, and false testimony creates for a leader, a double bind. I say nothing and everybody thinks it's true, or I fight back and then I'm defensive and ungodly. All right, guys, Pastor Mark here letting you know about the latest book, New Days, Old Demons. It's a prophetic word against pathetic wokeness. Uh, you guys understand exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, hopefully it is on sale. If not, it's coming out very, very soon. Would appreciate your prayers as we punch a lot of people and things in the mouth. And if it's a help, get a copy. And so what he's saying is, you respect a leader by trusting them. And he just previously rebuked those who are idlers. They're not doing anything, but they're criticizing people who are. They're gossips. They're into the latest, you know, whispering and trends and social media and posting stuff on the internet. And did you hear? And let me send you, you know, a text about what I think. And uh, just posting on the church, social media, sending out emails, just all this sort of terrorist tactics in the unseen realm and busybodies, he just rebuked. People who are not busy, but they're busybodies. 
they're not doing the things in their life that God has called them to do, but they're peering in on, particularly now through social media, and they have opinions about everybody else. Oh, I don't know how many hours that leader works and who are they accountable to and what kind of car do they drive and where do you think they live and you know what kind of school do you think their kids go to and you know what kind of watch do they wear and what kind of shoes do they wear and it's like none of your business who cares a leader has a right to privacy and there's a big difference between secrecy and privacy secrecy is covering up something that's bad privacy means it's just not your freaking business it's not your business it's just not. Uh, that's why I would encourage you to shower at home and not in the produce section of the grocery store, even though there usually is a spigot there that would make it possible, uh, because you have a right to privacy. And I would say this as well, and this is where I'm going to defend pastors and leaders from young yahoos and jackalopes. If it's not your church, it's not your freaking business. If you don't attend that church, what do you care? I mean, love the people, pray for them, be friends with the godly ones. But why do you need to know everything that's going on at that church? Why do you need to know what's going on with that leader? Why do you need to know what's going on with their family? Why do you need to be into church porn on the internet? And Christians are constantly vulnerable to false witnesses who build platforms and pay bills through clicks with church porn. And church porn is disgusting. It's gossip, it's innuendo, it's scandalous, and most of the time, the difference between that and a bucket of turds is just the bucket. Number three, you love a leader by expecting of them. If you really love a leader, you want them to be the best version of them so that they can then unburden, bless, and benefit those who are under their leadership. He goes on to say, chapter 5, verse 20 and 21, As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. What he's talking about here is when you're dealing with a leader, there are two ways to go if you think that there is some disqualifying sin in their life. And I will say this, there's a big difference between something that is disqualifying and something that is just a difference of opinion. You're like, I don't like the leader's style. So find another leader. I don't like their sense of humor. So find another leader. I don't like, you know, their personality. Great, find another leader. That's a difference, not a disqualification. And we live in an age where if you want to sort of deplatform, deconstruct, and destroy someone, you find one minor data point that you don't like, and then you magnify that into a disqualification. Um, what we're talking about here is the, the leader being accused of something that is genuinely sinful and could potentially require them to go through some sort of process to you know, sort of earn trust and heal up, or maybe even be disqualified. For example, like adultery. You commit adultery, you shouldn't be pastoring women. You should be meeting with a counselor and trying to apologize to your wife and kids. Um, if you are taking church money and um, gambling it at the casino, yeah, you should not have a church credit card. There are some real things that are real problems. 
And then there are other things that are very minor that number one are just human eccentricities that we need to overlook. Number two, personality or personal differences that we just need to get beyond. Or number three, things that are not disqualifying, but they're areas of improvement and maturity just like every single Christian has. And what he says is don't be partial. And partiality can be in one of two ways. Number one, you have church hurt, father wound, leaders have used and abused you, you've had a hard time. You've not healed up and forgiven. And so now every leader is guilty. And every leader is just a crook and a thief and a menace to society. And so as soon as you hear something, you're like, I knew it. And immediately you rush to judgment. That's, that's partiality. The other is that you're, you love the leader so much that you'll defend them even when it's indefensible. Like, uh, like I've seen so many churches where like pastor commits adultery, gets up and says, I'm sorry, and doesn't even get a week off and everybody defends him. I'm like, this is crazy, man. Like, dude, in the Old Testament, we just bury him. I mean, you'd get killed for this. It was a big deal. And so you can go one of two ways in error, rush to judgment and crucify someone wrongly or rush to defense and allow the worst kind of sin to be at the top of the organization and then flow through. Because culture is two things, whether it's a church, a family, a business, or a ministry, culture is two things, hear me in this, it's what you teach and what you tolerate. And you can teach things all day, but if you tolerate something different, that's the culture you're going to get. So at home you could say, kids, um, we honor mom. And as the boys get bigger, like you got to honor your mom. But if you allow your boys to just cuss mom out, the culture you will get is the culture that you tolerate, not the culture that you teach. In the church, if you have a church that is abusive of the pastor and they're constantly living under a microscope and everything they say and do is scrutinized and criticized, that is partiality and it's abusive. Conversely, if the pastor has no accountability and there's no pastor of the pastor, and the best way for a pastor to have accountability is for the pastor to have a pastor. That's what we see here. Timothy's the pastor. He's got a pastor named Paul. And Paul pastors Timothy. He's older and wiser, spiritual father, spiritual son. And then Timothy pastors the people. That's healthy governance. Fathers and sons, and then grandfathers raising up sons to become fathers to care for the next generation, the spiritual grandchildren. And so you can get a church where there is unhealthy leadership because it's tolerated, or there's abusive culture that really treats the pastor and his wife and his family just, quite frankly, horribly. And I could tell you stories, it's amazing to me, because you see all this church porn garbage out there. And when non-Christians start picking it up on their platforms and making money off of church porn, it just sickens my soul. But what you'll never hear is the, uh, the, the partiality and the abuse that comes to a leader's family. And, and I'm not defending myself, I'm defending pastors and ministry leaders. And sometimes the things that are said and done to pastors and their spouses and their children, it is reprehensible. But you're not going to find the discernment bloggers, the accountability people, or the church hurt people defending a pastor and his family or a leader in their family ever. It's all one way, and it's a violation of 1 Timothy 5, and it's partiality. And it is, we will attack leaders, and when leaders are attacked, we don't say or do anything because we are 
are anti-authority. We are anti-leadership, which means in our heart, we are anti-Bible and anti-Christ. And then number um, four, and I'll say this too, sometimes partiality is their sin is my sin. So if they committed adultery, like, well, I don't want them to get fired because I committed adultery too. We, we need to judge by the standard of God's word, not the standard of our own shortcomings to God's word. Number four, you love a leader by preparing them. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Do not uh, only drink water, but also a little wine uh, for the sake of your stomach and frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those who are not cannot remain hidden. So a couple things. Number one, God cares about our physical and our spiritual well-being. He's here talking about Timothy's heart and mind and soul, but also his body. What he's saying is, apparently, maybe it's nerves of the job. If you're a new leader over a church, you got a bit of a stomach issue. It's like, have some wine for your frequent ailments and to help calm your stomach. This is not grape juice. This is wine. Jesus' first miracle was making water into wine. If you're an alcoholic, don't drink. If you're with an alcoholic, don't drink around them and cause them to stumble. If you are of age and your conscience doesn't violate, feel free, if you want, to have a glass of wine. And for me, I didn't have any alcohol until I was 30. It was a conscience issue, not a Bible issue. And then at 30, my conscience changed. And, uh, you know, I'll have a glass of wine at dinner tonight just so that I'm not a hypocrite and I practice what I preach. My wife, Grace, she could drink alcohol, didn't have a problem with it, didn't have a conscience issue. She would have a glass of wine with dinner. I would not for the, for the first, you know, almost decade of our marriage. Number two. What he says is, don't be hasty in the laying on of hands. And what that is, is you love a leader by preparing them. There's a difference between calling, anointing, gifting, and timing. Calling is from God. Gifting is from God. Anointing is from God. Timing is something that you need to work on. And so your gifting and your calling and your anointing can get ahead of your preparing. How do I know this? I'm guilty. I got saved at 21, did not grow up in the church, didn't have, I got saved at 19, married at 21, did not grow up in the church, did not have an evangelical background, didn't have a spiritual father at that time in my life that I went into ministry. And um, I knew that God had called me, I knew that he had gifted me, and I knew that he had anointed me, but I got ahead of his timing. And so I rushed into ministry, and, and I, I got rushed. I mean, I'll be honest, like, I had a church of under 100, mainly punk rock college kids meeting on a Sunday night. I'm working for free for the first three years as an unpaid volunteer because this is the brokest church you've ever seen. And um, lo and behold, the media started calling. I'm getting awards. I'm getting called by major magazines and news outlets, and they want to report on me. And I'm nobody. I have no. I don't have a degree yet from seminary. I would later get a master's in Bible. I'm not part of a denomination. I'm not part of a network. I don't come from an evangelical family. Uh, I, I hadn't written a book. Like I'm a nobody. But all of a sudden, I got rushed, and everybody's like, "What do you think about culture and trends and where things are going?" And I was like, "Well, I have a big mouth. I'll talk." 
and boom, next thing I know, conferences. I'm getting flown around the country and put on stages, speaking to hundreds, thousands of people at a time. And at this point, like I've been a Christian for maybe 15 minutes, and I'm not even yet a father, so I don't even have experience as a dad. And all of a sudden, I'm on tour, and then there's book deals, and, and then I'm, you know, ABC Nightline multiple times, and it just keeps going. And, uh, and I wasn't a victim, not at all, because I agreed to all of that for two reasons, if I'm totally honest. Number one, like, I want to get the gospel out. Number two, I'm an arrogant, ambitious young man who got ahead of himself. So yeah, maybe half my motives were good and half were probably something where a guy like Paul should have put his finger in my chest and said, you need to shut up and go home and read your Bible some more and wait a decade. And that would have been really good advice. I'm not sure I would have taken it. But if you're a young guy, I would tell you this, don't rush ahead of God's timing. And if you're an older guy, don't take a gifted young leader and rush them. This can be in church or ministry or business or whatever. But here's what I see. Those that have public gifts, especially within the church, those who can preach, lead, they're high woo, big personality, your worship leaders, your creatives, your musicians, they can get rushed because there's a desperate need for them. And, um, and as a result, we can have their, um, their ability get ahead of their character and rush them to the stage. This is why I've seen, and now I'm 52, I've been a pastor for 30 years, senior pastor for, I don't know, I think 28 now is what I'm coming up on. I've seen guys go up fast and come down hard because they're young and they're gifted and they're talented, whether they're a preacher or a writer or an influencer or a musician or a creative or a songwriter, boom, they go up fast. But the key is not, can you get up, but can you stay up? And that's true in any business, any ministry, any job, any company. It's not just, can you get up, but can you stay up? And so those who go up fast and come down hard, usually it was hasty in the laying on of hands. We didn't train them. We didn't prepare their character. We didn't work on their private life and their morality and their marriage. And so they went up fast and they came down hard. And so my encouragement is if you're a younger guy, you probably need to be more patient than you think. And if you're an older guy, don't rush them just because they're ambitious or gifted. And then number five, you love a leader by serving them. Let all who are under the yoke as bond servants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved teach and urge to these things. And what he's saying is that leadership is a burden and he calls it here uh, a yoke. And so, you know, when you're leading and serving, there's a weight on you. It's, it's, it's a burden. Uh, Pastor Jimmy Evans, uh, one of my pastors, he told me as I was going back to plant my second church in my mid-40s, kind of starting all over with a hard reset on my life, that God's been super gracious and I'm super grateful. It's the best season of my life now. But he said, being a leader is like wearing a 200-pound jacket. You never get to take it off. You wear it to bed, you wear it to dinner, you wear it to vacation, you wear it in the shower, you wear it on your day off. And you don't know how heavy it is until you take it off. Like I took a season of 18 months and I just exited ministry. I didn't defend myself, canceled my speaking engagements, my writing, social media, just exited it all. 
And man, immediately it was like, oh my gosh, I have been carrying this load for so long, I didn't even realize it. And what he's saying, it is a load. And you need to respect and honor leaders who are serving. They're carrying a load that you probably don't understand. It's like the difference between a babysitter and a dad. A babysitter is like, oh, I watched the kids and I fed them and I tucked them in, I protected them. It's like, yeah, and that's great. But, but being the dad is totally different than being the babysitter. And what they like to say is stuff rolls downhill. It doesn't. Stuff rolls uphill. That's what John Maxwell, the great leadership expert, says. If person, if a person doesn't deal with something, eventually the leader has to deal with it. That's why the leader has the 200 pound jacket. That's why he calls it uh, the yoke. It's this heavy weight of responsibility. So how do you honor a leader? By serving them. And it means if you have a job to do, do your job to the best of your ability so that your responsibilities don't go up and burden the leader with additional responsibilities. In addition, he says, whether it's at church or work, if your leader is a believer and you're a believer, you need to work doubly hard to do a good job because that's also your brother in Christ or sister in Christ, depending upon who the leader and overseer is, and also um, it's part of your testimony and witness. And sometimes people think, well, I work for the church, so I don't have to work hard. You know, they can't fire me. Or, you know, I work for a Christian boss, you know, and he knows that my family's going through a hard time, so he'd never fire me. I kind of got him in a spot where he owes me. And what he's saying is, don't think that way. If you're a believer working with or for believers, you should not do less, you should do more, you should not take advantage of the situation, you should set the best example in the organization, okay? So five ways to love leaders. Pay them, trust them, have high expectations for them, prepare them, and then serve them and help them to do the things that God has called them to lead and to do. In closing, I would just ask you two questions, and if you've got a small group, maybe this will jumpstart your conversation. Number one, who are you leading? Right? Who is, who has, and maybe it's not, maybe it is formal. Maybe you're a leader at your church and you've got a team, or, or maybe you're a senior pastor like me, or maybe you own a company, or you're a CFO, or CEO, or XP, or whatever. You've got a, who are, who is following you formally? Number two, who's following you informally? Again, we established at the beginning, leadership is influence. Who listens to you? Who follows you? Who imitates you? Who admires you? Who respects you? Who's copying you? Probably your kids, if you're a dad, you're a leader. If you're a husband, you have a wife, you've got a family, you're a leader. Um, who, who, who looks up to you? Who depends on you? Are you coaching at sports? Are you serving at church? Are you volunteering in the community? Like, where's your sphere of influence? Who are you leading? And are you building a culture where you're humble and they're honoring so that it's healthy? Number two, what authority are you under? Who are you following? Who's your leader? Who have you given permission to speak into your life? Who have you given permission to correct you? Who are you accountable to? Um, who do you submit to? Who do you defer to? And are you being honest with them? And are you being respectful of them? And if you are a guy who only has people that speak into your life that are brothers and not fathers, you're in a dangerous position and you have a father wound. And what happens is sometimes guys who have a father wound, they know they need to be under authority or accountable or following leadership. But because of their father wound, they won't follow an older man, they'll follow a brother, a big brother.
And that's not the case here. Paul is the father. Timothy is the son. Paul calls Timothy my spiritual son. And Timothy here is a leader and people are following him. And he's also under Paul, who is a leader. And if you want to win at life and business and ministry and work, it's winning at leading. And it is also winning at following a godly leader who is older and a spiritual father who is ahead of you. And if you don't have that guy, you need to find that guy. And if you're older, by God's grace, we want you to be that guy. Thanks for tuning in. We'll pick up finances in the next one. Pastor Mark here saying thank you for giving me the honor of helping you to learn God's word in a world filled with bad news, you need some good news. In a world filled with lies, you need some truth. And so, as I like to say, it's all about Jesus. We open the Bible and we help people learn about Jesus Christ. And I just want to say, uh, if you would help me get the Word of God out, it would mean the world to me. You can go to realfaith.com, mountain of Bible teaching. I mean, we're coming up on three decades of Bible teaching. And or if you just go to 99383 and text the word unfiltered, again, that's 99383 unfiltered. We'll send you a link that'll open up literally thousands and thousands and thousands of pieces of free Bible teaching.